Again, Lord, we come to you and we can't help but start with the words, thank you. Thank you for this church family. Thank you that you created the church, uh, that you called uh, tongues and tribes from every nation to come together to worship you on the Lord's day, to bring glory to you, that we as those that are indwelled by the Holy Spirit can come together to make up the church. It's your creation, so may it be time well spent today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I have to start with a retraction. Eh, modification. Yeah. Um, so, it, but for, in particular, for the sake uh, of last week, I made the point that one of the reasons that we're even going through this at all is that we're precise with our language. And uh, in retrospect, I was imprecise in one of the things I was uh, talking about. Just in, I was uh, mentioning that the idea of the three-tiered cosmology was an uh, anthropomorphism, which actually, more appropriately, is a subset of an analogy. So really, it's an analogy, and anthropomorphism is specifically attribute physical attributes human attributes so it's still an analogy the concept is there but if we're going to be precise with our language then i too need to make sure that i'm precise with the language so it would be better to say that that whole idea of the the three-tiered cosmology and in the invisible along with the visible that um that god is using this or using language for us that creates an analogy that we can sink our teeth into. So that's kind of the idea there. Okay, so we looked at last week the, uh, that three-tiered cosmos, and we looked at verses that talked about the heavens, the earth, and under the earth. And basically, everywhere that it, it had those, that language, there was this sense of totality, right? There was heaven, the earth, and the under the earth. Well, now what we're going to do is we're going to take that and we're going to zoom in to the under the earth portion. We're going to dig in a little bit deeper. And today, being class two of the realm of the dead, we are going to look specifically at death, Sheol, and Hades. So um, to do that, let's uh, first make the distinction here between translation and transliteration. So translation would, I'm sure that you're familiar with, translation is that idea of converting a language, you know, the words of an original language into a different language, completely different words. Does anybody want to give a shot at what transliteration is? Ooh, we got hands coming up. Fielder's choice, Mark. Translation is more like translating the thought, the idea of a sentence, whereas transliteration would be a word-for-word exact translation. Uh, no. No. (laughs) If I'm not mistaken... What was that, Kaylin? If I'm not mistaken, a translation is taking the meaning of a word, and a transliteration is taking like the sound of a word and putting it in yes, letters. Yes, that's that's much closer. So actually, the difference. So you could have a word-for-word translation. You know, like let's just say Spanish to English. You get you know, casa means house, and you're like, well, that's a direct. I'm I'm translating from casa to how blanco means white. You know, 
And so you can go word for word and go through and translate word for word. But the difference with transliteration is it actually swaps out the letters themselves for, um, for the letters they would represent in the language you're transliterating to. So the example I've thrown up here is we have two, uh, two words up here. One is in Hebrew and one is in Greek. And this is Sheol, literally the, the uh, Hebrew of Sheol. And so when we say Sheol, we are actually taking the letters. Of course, they go this direction. But So we're actually taking, this makes the sh sound, and then that whole involved there. So we're actually taking in, in that last letter there. So we're, and so by transliterating, you're taking the letters themselves and changing them to a corresponding letter in the language, you know, in our case in English, that's actually direct too. So same way here, this says Hades. So what do we do? We say Hades. All right, so that's what transliteration is. It's that direct swapping. So, so that you're wrapping your head around this a little bit, when what, the reason that we might want to use transliteration is so that we can be more precise with our language. So one of the phrases that um, uh, Nick, Nick and I, one of our uh, language professors used, and I think Nick has even mentioned it before, is that translation is treason. Now that's a really hardcore comment to make. There's nothing sinful about translations. Um, translations are quoted even within the New Testament. They're, they're quoting from the Greek Old Testament, even though the Greek was not originally written. Or, I mean, the uh, Old Testament was not originally written in Greek. And so there's nothing wrong with a translation. But the concept that the professor is trying to drive home is that something happens when you translate. You're having to make decisions about nuance and things like that. Well, what happens then when you transliterate is you basically eliminate that temporarily. So even if you don't know the Hebrew language and you haven't taken courses in how to translate all of biblical Hebrew or how to translate all of biblical Greek, when you read the word in English, Sheol, it is a transliterated word. So if you know the definition of that word, then you automatically, in a sense, can bring that original thought into your English reading without having to know. You know, it's like a temporary, knowing the language temporarily. When I say temporarily, I mean like for a word. So there is benefit there. So we, there is an example for us. If everyone would turn in their Bibles to Acts chapter 1 and look at verse 19 here. I'm going to read this one. So Acts 1.19 says, And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. So do you see that in those two descriptions we have both a translation and a transliteration? So when it says it became known uh, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is Aramaic, you'll notice they, they didn't write Akeldama in Aramaic letters. They, 
you know, our translators put it in, or, or at the time, in the original Greek, they would have put akeldama using Greek letters to transliterate what in Aramaic was akeldama, but then we actually, it gives us right on the, the heels of that, a translation, which says, that is, field of blood. So that really gives you the idea of what's taking place. There is a transliteration going right hand in hand with a translation. So that's the principle at work. Now, here is, hopefully, you'll, you'll follow me a little bit. So this is what's interesting. So the Old Testament, the Hebrew canon, it was originally written in Hebrew, right? That's our Old Testament and New Testament, the majority, all but, you know, a few verses don't. It, my goodness. And then our, of course, is this is what happens, is we read throughout the Old Testament this word sheol, which in English, which clearly means that it's transliterated. It's an originally a Greek word, I mean a Hebrew word. When you read it, it is sheol, so we transliterate it sheol. But then when you move into the New Testament, it's written in Greek, and this and basically this concept of Hades is synonymous with Sheol. So, if you were to read the Septuagint, so that is a Greek version of the Old Testament, what you would find is that almost entirely in the Old Testament, where it says in the original Hebrew, Sheol, when they're translating it into Greek, they translate it as Hades. So they're not transliterating, they're translating, because they change it entirely to their Greek word. You guys follow me on this? Okay, so what I'm saying is both transliteration and translation is kind of taking place together. But what is important to take out of that is that these are, um, you know, I'm not sure I'm prepared to say just 100% synonymous, but biblically... These two are pretty much used interchangeably. And so to support that, what I'm saying is that those that were translating the Hebrew Old Testament um, into Greek would even put Hades in place of Sheol when they're writing the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. So these two concepts, and we're going to see that here as we continue this morning. We're going to see how these kind of tie together. But this already, hopefully, is helping you get your mind around these terms that you read. So when you read in Greek, in, in English, you're reading Hades. That's being transliterated from Hades. And yet, in a way, at the same time, it's also translating, sometimes looking backward from Sheol. So um, kind of an interesting thing. But uh, the thing to take away from what I'm talking about is that Hades and Sheol are largely... I would even say essentially, foundationally, synonymous. So, this is helpful for us uh, because look at, look at what happens here. So, I've written, hopefully you can see up here. So, I've got uh, NASB, ESV, NET, which, by the way, I'll just take a moment because I already had two people ask me about this. The NET is the New English Translation it is authored, or no, not authored, it is edited. He's not, it's not a one-person operation. But it's edited by Daniel Wallace, who is basically, in my 
just, I would call him the preeminent um, Greek scholar of our day right now. He, um, he has authored the textbooks that almost every seminary that I, that I, people that I've talked to when they talk about the Greek textbooks that they've had to use, they're authored by Daniel Wallace. And he's, he's, he's a current guy. He's, he's doing um, archaeology in, in Israel and stuff that have to do with languages and things. Anyway, uh, he's the editor of this new English translation. So uh, both, and in fact, Pastor Nick and I were talking about this ahead of time. These are like the five that we tend to kind of bounce around and see and compare against and stuff. So you've got the NASB, the ESV, the NET, that New English Translation, also the NIV and the King James Version here. Okay, so this is where things get pretty interesting. So, in the Old Testament, the word Sheol, so original language, the word Sheol is used 65 times. All right. So in the Old Testament, it's used 65 times. Now, this is where things get, they get kind of fascinating as you go, okay, well, a decision has already been made because all of these, you know, when you're reading in English, the overwhelming majority ha- is not transliterated, right? It's translated. You're reading in English, and they aren't all these new words that started with Hebrew letters. They're, they're English words from the outset. Well, so somebody has already made a decision early on to transliterate the word Sheol. So you already have the benefit of the fact that when the very first translations, they kept the word Sheol, but not always. So the NIV of the 65 opportunities do it 64 times. They keep the word Sheol. In the old, this is the Old Testament in the Hebrew translated to English. Am I I making sense? Hopefully. Okay. All right. So of the 65 times, the NASB does it 64. The ESV does it 63. They just keep it shield. They don't don't change it to anything else. We get down to the New English translation. It keeps it 37 times. So already you have the remainder. The difference between 37 and 65, a decision's being made to depart from using that transliterated word of Sheol to something else. And then when you get down to the NIV and the King James, you have zero. They don't use the word Sheol at all. Now, again, this is not me blasting in any way translators and everything. They've made decisions to do that. We're just trying to get to the bottom of the word itself and and how, how these things have shaken out and really how that may have impacted the way that we uh, view certain concepts as we read. So what they've done here then, translations, so uh, obviously the NET does it and the NIV and KG, uh, King James Version does it entirely, is that they've replaced um, Sheol with either grave or pit or hell So that's why in those translations, you will read a word like that, but it's possible that behind it in the original, it's Sheol. And in fact, if you just looked at at another English translation, in this case, like the NASB or the ESV, there's a high likelihood that when you look at theirs, it actually says Sheol, transliteration. There you go. Okay. Well, like I'm asserting that Sheol and Hades, largely synonymous here, so I'm just going to do the same thing as far as the Greek New Testament We have the NASB and the New English translation. Oh, there are 10 opportunities. 
that in the original Greek, the word Hades is used. In the NASB and the New English translation, all ten, they put the transliterated in English Hades for you. All right? In the ESV, nine out of the ten times. The NIV, eight out of the ten times. And then the King James doesn't use the word Hades at all. And on top of all this, that kind of complicates matters, is even the ones right here, the, the two that the NIV does not translate as Hades and the one that the ESV doesn't, aren't the same. The ones that they choose are not the same one, you know, or at least the one, you know, is not the same. So, again, we're like, okay, and I'm not throwing shade on translators. They've made their decisions, and they're really smart guys with lots of letters after their name. I, I'm, not, I'm, in, I'm in no position to, to criticize them in any way. But we're trying to get to how can we understand the, the Bible that we're holding and get a hold of these concepts appropriately. But there was a diversity of decisions along the way here between either transliterating or translating. Decisions were made. And in a sense, you could say uh, the extreme case here with the King James Version in both of these, the translators of the King James Version has made the decision for you by saying pit or grave or hell or something like that. And really, what, what's problematic about it for us today that may not have even been nearly as much of a problem at the time that it was translated is that, is that whole word hell. That's what really gets us. Because, you know, this is back to the stuff I was mentioning last week, which is when you hear the word hell, you know, where does your mind go? It's, I think for most people, it is the worst of the worst, eternal fire, damnation, you know, that's the, and, and so, which may be correct, or probably the better way to put it is maybe correct part of the time, but to take that concept and to bring it back yourself then if King James uses hell where it may not mean that because you're importing that back in. So that's where we want to have this sense. So Sheol and Hades. So what we need most right now with this new knowledge that you have is we need a definition, right? We're like, okay, so then what is it? What is Sheol and Hades? If we get the translate, let's say I've got my NASB in Hebrew uh, and Greek, and I've, you know, I've, got, I've got these translations that, for the most part, max out my transliterated word of either Sheol or Hades. What should I be thinking when I read that word? Okay, let's... I'm not going to just hand you a textbook definition. We are going to look at the Word of God. So... I've handed out some scriptures, and we're going to start with, so we're going to talk about characteristics right now. So we have our Sheol and Hades, and we're going to talk about characteristics that come up in these verses that we read. All right, so we're going to go on this little journey ourselves. So whoever has Numbers, chapter 16, and if you could read verse 30, and then also verse 33. This is Numbers 16, 30, and 33. But if the Lord creates something new, 
And the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol. Then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. In verse 33, so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Okay, so what we have here um, is this idea of certain people going down into Sheol. Are they good people or bad people? Sinaz. Simpl- I'm simplifying here. Yes. Yeah. Bad, right? Yeah. This is Korah's rebellion. The earth, yeah. it's a God opens the earth itself yep. and swallows them, and using biblical verbiage, into Sheol. Okay, let's look at... Um, and by the way, I'm going to comment on that going alive into Sheol here in just a minute. Um, and let's go to Isaiah 14, verses 9 to 11. Sheol from beneath trembles excitingly over you to meet you when you come. It wakens for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all answer and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pride in the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. Okay, we have uh, um, shells describing wicked kings that are going to be in, she- in Sheol, where there are maggots and worms. Okay, so we have uh, Korah's rebellion, we have wicked kings, and then another one for this is Psalm 49, verses 13 to 15. It's Gerald over here. Psalm 49, verses 13 to 15. And by the way, um, we're not going to hit all 65 of these, so I've, I've just chosen ones to illustrate the point. So go ahead, Gerald. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, and for he will receive me. Okay, so again, the, the theme here that I've tried to point out in these, in a general sense, is Sheol is a place for the wicked to go. Or God condemns them, or in Korah's rebellion, the earth literally opens up and swallows them into Sheol. Okay, now let's go to Genesis 37, 34 to 30, and 35, verses 34 and 35. Genesis 37, verses 34 and 35. And our players here are Jacob and Joseph. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Okay, so Jacob, one of the tribes, or one of the, I'm sorry, not one of the tribes, one of the uh, um, patriarchs here is saying he's so upset because of the death of who? Joseph, right? 
that he's like, uh, my gray hairs are going to come down. Uh, I, I'm going to go down to Sheol. So that would put two people in Sheol. If, this is, if what he's saying, this concept is accurate, that would put two people in Sheol, Jacob and Joseph, because if he's going to go there, like he's saying he will, and when he gets there, the reason he's going there is to see Joseph, then that now puts Jacob and Joseph in Sheol. And if their concept of Sheol was hell, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? I mean, what? That doesn't make any sense at all. So let's look at another example. Job 17, verses 11 to 16. So, no, not you, not you. Uh, he, you've got a different Job. Yes. You? Yes, yes two Jobs. Uh, Job seventeen eleven through 16? Uh, yes, correct. My days are past, my plans are broken off, the desires of my heart. They make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol is my house, if I make my bed in darkness... If I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother, or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? Okay. So, again, we have this descent language. Uh, We have Job. He's lamenting, but he's talking about descending into Sheol. Is Job the one who says, Lord, what have I done wrong? And, and God himself saying, you know, have you seen Job? You know, and God declares him righteous. And yet Job says, I'm going to go to, down to Sheol. So is Job condemning himself to hell? No, that, that doesn't make any sense. We don't have Jacob uh, going to hell and Joseph going to hell or Job going uh, to, to hell either. Now, an important concept there, and I don't know if you grabbed it, is that Job talked about being together with his family in Sheol. So there's also a sense at that, at that time where when you go to Sheol, you are gathered with your people. And so if you take that phrase, so now you're, uh, uh, I'm making the, the move from the word Sheol to the concept of to go to Sheol is to be gathered to your people. That's why as well you see over and over again the phrase that after I die, take my bones and bury it at such and such a location, I want to be gathered with my fathers. Is that same idea that they've gone into Sheol and they're going to be gathered with their fathers. And so if that's the case, now you've also got Abraham saying that, you've got Isaac saying that. And so that automatically now is just subtracting out the the idea that um, a one-for-one translation of Sheol being hell is just not going to be a good one. And then we have a third concept um, in a few more verses. So Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Okay, and then go ahead and come on back over here. Now we have um, Julian's Job. Uh, Job 7, 7 to 10. Remember that my life is but wind. My eye will not again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes will be on me, but I will not be. 
A cloud vanishes and it is gone. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place recognize him anymore. Okay, so here we're seeing, next is Psalm 6, 5. Um, we're seeing now this de- more developed idea of Sheol just being this general place of death. Go ahead, um, Glenda. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Okay, and then Psalm 30, verse 3. Did I give that to anyone? Psalm 30? Oh, Caitlin. Okay. Oh, Yahweh, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Okay, so now that you have this better concept, I think more accurate concept of, um, at a minimum, what we're looking at here is that Sheol is this general place of the dead and that, you know, God brings back from Sheol in certain circumstances, but that we're talking about the place of the dead, which clearly does not mean at all times bad or that only the wicked go there. Yes, the wicked do go there. Uh, Yes, the not wicked go there. And yes, it's also described in more general terms. Now, another thing that's really helpful, uh, this is kind of side note, but connected to this, is there are three different times where uh, there are verses that talk about going alive into Sheol. If you think about it for a second, if Sheol is the general place of death, doesn't everybody do that? Right? You're either alive or you're dead. So the, the fact that the Bible references that, it's, it's a euphemism for an early death. Bring them be, before their, their time. So two of the three verses we read, uh, Carol read about Korah's rebellion. So the earth opens up and swallows them all. So they went alive into Sheol, meaning they, they, their lives were cut short. And then there's also in Proverbs 1.12, there's a reference kind of like that as well. So we have Sheol um, is, in the verses that we read, dark and like a pit. It has maggots and is dusty. It's this general place of the dead. Now, another thing that I'm really hopeful that we, we do in this series, and starting right now, is to help you shift your mindset and the way that you look at these things. I know that uh, Nick has mentioned it several times as he's preached through the entirety of Genesis and as he's made his way into Exodus, that when the authors of the Old Testament are writing, they don't write the way that we write today in this very linear way, you know, where we say this happened, you know, A happened, then B happens, then C happens, and we like things to be in a particular order. In, uh, in the ancient Near East, they, they did things in a different way. They communicated, they would tell a story, then they would retell the story with new details, and it gives a different complexity and depth. They look at the way, uh, or, or they communicated these, these um, uh, narratives in a different way. And so what is happening here? thing happens in the case of Sheol, and then it also carries over into Greek. Even though the Greeks tend to think the way we do, or we tend to think like the Greeks do more so, still that uh, there's a different view of these concepts more than just, can you tell me, you know, let's see, uh, Sheol comes after she, uh, you know, whatever, in the dictionary. It's not just straightforward. It's more, it's a little more conceptual. And one of the ways that we see that is in scripture, Sheol and Hades, the place of the dead, is personified. 
in fact, and we'll look at the verses here, in fact, if you, you know, if you've even watched uh, the Disney movie Hercules, right? Hades, the character Hades, the animated character Hades is a, it's a character. It's not just a place, it's a character and, and everything. And in Greek culture, they perceived Hades as a person. So kind of a, you know, a mythical god of some kind. And so what we have here are these personifications. So we've already had God giving to us this analogy of location, okay, under the earth, like it's a place, and we keep having this language like descent, um, just like going into the earth at Korah's rebellion. And so we have the location analogy, but we also have an analogy of characteristics that personify it as well. So let's look at a couple of those verses as well. Oh, I, you know what? Let me, let me pause. We're going to stick with characteristic, characteristics for two more verses. Uh, Sheol, uh, Isaiah 38.10. Who's got that one? Wayne. I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. Okay, notice that it says, I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol. So this is, this is going to be important later. So this concept of Sheol, it has gates. And then also Psalm 9, 13 to 17. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord himself has made known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higion. The wicked shall return to Sheol, the nations that forgot God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor, poor shall not perish forever. Okay. Oh, oh sorry. Did you... Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Okay. So again, we have in both the descriptors that Wayne and that Jamie read there is that Sheol has gates uh, or has bars. And we're not going to take the time to read it. But in Isaiah 38, verse 10, that's where Hezekiah is in really poor health. And he makes a comment that um, he is like, I forget what it is, against or he's near the gates of Sheol. In other words... It's a, it, it, the gates, the bars, are the entrance into Sheol, and he's communicating that he has one foot in the grave. Like, I'm, I'm about to die. I'm right there. The gates are right there. So the idea being that once you enter into Sheol as a place of death, there's no getting out. That, that's that whole so the, the imagery that's going on. Gates, bars, and those are characteristics that are speaking of this general death. Now, going to the personification piece, um, and we know Greek literature portrays Hades as 
uh, as a being as well. But let me, instead of reading verses, because there are so many, I just want to list these for you. This is incredible. So I'm reading right now from uh, The Battle for the Keys by Justin W. Bass. And uh, listen to this. All of these have multiple, one or more um, scripture references to them. To illustrate, death, uh, death is, a, is also personified throughout the Old Testament. Uh, to illustrate, death uses waves of the sea against its vic- his victims, cords and snares. He ascends through windows. He terrorizes. He consumes. Death is never satisfied. Death crushes. Death speaks. Death shepherds. Death is the enemy of man. Death has weapons. Death is sent by God. Death meets people. Death can be called upon. Death makes covenants. Death has a soul. Death has an angel or messenger. Death gives no praise to God. Death and the Lord, uh, or, and the Lord will swallow death up forever. So again, giving it that, that personification. And then death sometimes is even presented like a city with gates, the gates of death. So you see over and over and over again, that's all in the Old Testament, where Sheol is used or some uh, um, derivative of that, a translation of that in death, it's presented with all of those characteristics of personification. So we have both this analogy of location and we have this sense of power that death has, like there is either a being that is in control of that location or that, um, that it is uh, one and the same, that both the location has power in some way. And so we see that take place over and over again throughout the Old Testament. So this is what we know, is that Sheol and Hades as the realm of the dead, the underworld is essentially a place of death, you know, in a, from a location perspective. From an Old Testament perspective, it's one, a place with bars, and two, is itself a being or there is a being that has authority over it. So, and here's the other thing we know, is that both the righteous and the unrighteous went down to it, Sheol or Hades, with two exceptions. Who are they? This is just fun trivia, but thank you. Enoch and Elijah, right? Neither of them actually died. They were taken off by God. So they did not have to pass go, did not collect $200. So God bless them that they didn't have to experience that. But from the Old Testament perspective, before we even complete this series, already, as you read your Old Testament and you make your way through it, and you hit the word Sheol, you should automatically, in your mind, know, okay, well, it's not hell, it's place of death, and there is some sort of power, it has bars, it has gates, Um, you know, David calls for people to be taken down there, if they're taken down uh, alive into Sheol, it's an early death, I mean, all of these concepts should be helping you to, to envision what is being communicated in, that, in the context of those particular verses. So, since we know we don't want to just call it hell, of course, it begs the question, how is it possible 
that the wicked and the righteous can be in the same place. That's what we're going to talk about next week. So, anybody, I've got just a few minutes for any comments or thoughts. Uh, You're going to have to wait. Uh, We got Monica. Go ahead, Monica. So, Old Testament, you're saying that people had a common knowledge. Where did this common knowledge come from? How do we know that it's um, authoritative? Yeah, I don't mean to misspeak and say common knowledge because I don't know what they did or didn't know. All I'm saying is that the biblical concept within the Old Testament of Sheol was this general place of death, and we can know that's what they thought because we're reading the verses about um, Job and Jacob going down to Sheol, being taken down to Sheol. Right. How do we know that their concepts are accurate? Well, they're consistent with the entirety uh, of Scripture and how this plays out, which we're going to continue to see. Now, how they were taught or something, I don't... So the Bible says it, I believe it, kind of thing? Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. So, Shoal and Hades has a partition between the wicked and the non-wicked. Uh, unless they're hanging There's out together. There. There has to be a layer yeah. somewhere. Yeah, you would think so. I don't know what happens later. Yeah, yeah. No. Don't get sick next week. <laughs> Tune in next time. Later. I'm not going to be a, yeah. a buster. On yeah, yeah. Joe back there, I think, has his hand up. Is there any reference in the Old Testament when they talk about Hades or, or Sheol of uh, suffering there or gnashing of teeth or punishment? Or yeah, great questions. Great questions. And we're going to hit it all. We're going to hit it all. So, yes, bad things happen there for sure. So, so, so the answer is absolutely bad things happen in Sheol. But we have, and what I'm not, of course, not giving you the answer to right now is we have to reconcile, you know, that bad things are happening in Sheol. So what, what is, what's the deal with the, the righteous, the not wicked being there as well? Like, how does that work out? And we have answers. Praise God. So I know I'm messing with you a little bit, but. Yeah, sure. You're fine. And we actually have three minutes, so. Monica, to your question about the accuracy of the <clears throat> cosmology, the understanding of existence of particular areas, um, I'm in the, in the Old Testament, so I, I'm reading a lot of the ancient Near East, and the, most of the ancient Near East has a, a cosmology of heaven, earth, and underworld. What you see in the Bible over and over again is you see perversions of that by the pagans. Hmm. So their concepts get skewed. For example, they see the fallen angelic beings as gods. They are a being that is able to be in the divine realm, so they pervert it and think that they are gods, but there is only one God. So the cosmology was pretty consistent. It was the perversions and the nuances of it, if that makes sense. Thank you. Anything else?
All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Again, thank you, Lord, for uh, these resources. Thank you for other uh, men that have spent time studying this. Most of all, Lord, we're grateful for your holy scriptures, and we pray that we would be able to mine these truths out of there, that we would just find these nuggets um, that would not only enlighten our minds, but would spark our hearts as well to, um, to live more faithfully for you. Bless the service that is to follow in Christ's name. Amen.